Hello, Cinephile fans. This is John Roca. This week on The Cinephiles, Steve Morris and I are tackling Clint Eastwood's 1992 Oscar-winning masterpiece, Unforgiven. As you all know, I am the outlaw in the Schmodown, and there's no subject I love more, no genre of film I love more than westerns. And this is one of my favorites. It stars Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, Francis Fisher, Richard Harris, Jamie Wolvett, and Saul Rubinick. It's a fantastic film that centers on this character named Will Money, who in the past had been one of the most vicious and vile criminals in the West, but gets redeemed by a woman, has two children with her, and then she passes. And he's asked to go on this mission by this young kid, young strapping kid, who wants to prove who he is. And he engages his old friend Morgan Freeman to come with him, and they try to go to this town, Big Whiskey, and take vengeance on these two cowboys who've cut up a woman who made a joke about the size of a man's penis, which you know you should never do. The film explores how Will Money goes from this pig farmer who had abandoned his former life as a criminal to re-embracing that piece of himself and using that to exact vengeance on Big Whiskey and Little Bill, played by Gene Hackman. It's an incredible film that won Best Picture in 1992, and Clint Eastwood won Best Director for it as well. So sit back, relax, grab yourself a beer from the saloon, maybe put on your cowboy hat and your little tin star, and listen to us talk about Unforgiven on the Cinephiles. Ned, you remember that drover I shot through the mouth and his teeth came out the back of his head? I think about him now and again. He didn't do anything to deserve to get shot. At least nothing I could remember when I sobered up. You ain't like that no more. That's right. I'm just a fella now. I ain't no different than anyone else. No more. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello everyone, my name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, host, writer, and producer, and we're going to talk about westerns. So I got my Western accent on. Are we going to do the whole thing like this? <laughs> no, part? no, probably not. I'm not. I'm not Robert Downey. You want to do it? I can do it. I can. We can do the whole thing. Yeah, there you uh, go. No, this is an uh, obviously, and I host a bunch of shows uh, over at Collider and everything like that. And uh, I couldn't be more excited to be talking about this uh, this film today. The film is Unforgiven, and the reason we're doing Unforgiven is because of one of our incredible supporters on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Drew Enns has been a supporter of the show almost since the beginning. Yeah. We are so grateful for his support, and he is a huge Clint Eastwood fan. His picks were Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. They were all the Clint Eastwood films, including Unforgiven. So I would love to hear from Drew. Drew, what is it about Clint Eastwood you love so much, and in particular, Unforgiven? Hi, Steve. Hi, John. This is Drew from Fairfax, Virginia. I remember growing up with my dad watching Westerns um, and knowing very clearly who the good guy was and who the villain was. And for the first time, Unforgiven kind of turned all that on its head. I remember struggling with the fact that I was rooting for William Money. I remember seeing the biographer Buchamp going around and 
trying to romanticize these Westerns, almost like what I had grown up watching and how it was a really difficult time. And it wasn't pretty when bounty hunters went after outlaws, et cetera, et cetera. And it just woke up a lot of stuff in me. So thank you for, again, tackling it this week. I'm looking forward to listening to the episode. And thanks for all you all do. Um, wow, thank wow. you. Well, thank you so much for your support. Yeah, thank you, Drew. I really, we really appreciate it. Do you know, John, that this is our first Clint Eastwood film? What? Really? I think so. And, and we've just kind of crossed the line. I still can remember every movie we've talked about. Have we still done a Hitchcock film or no? Nope. Good God, Steve. No. It's, it's, we got to make that happen. I know. It, it's, we do. It's terrible. He's rolling in his grave. Yeah, well... <laughs> That uh, won't do my films. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I figured we'd do a little bit of biography of Clint Eastwood. Yeah. A, because he's such an interesting and important person and so different from a lot of the other directors we've talked about. Mm. And also because I have a weird special connection to Eastwood, which I'll get to in a minute. Okay. Uh, but he was born in San Francisco, my hometown, grew up in Oakland, and uh, was part, you know grew up in the Depression. His family was unsurprisingly very outdoorsy. So he grew up with... Horses and guns and swimming and camping and hiking and all that stuff, which he would later use later on. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a true love of jazz and no interest whatsoever in being an actor. Hmm. It didn't even occur to him. The one thing he knew he didn't want to do was join the army, which he had to. He, was, <laughs> he went into the army and he ended up being a swimming instructor at sure. Fort Ord. And Fort Ord is central coast of California. And that fell in love with that area, Monterey, Carmel. And that's where he lived the rest of his life. Wow. And then he came down to LA. And I don't quite even understand the circumstances because he still says he didn't think about being an actor. But he ended up joining the Universal talent pool oh, okay. which was basically a bunch of good-looking people who posed for pictures they were in backgrounds for movies and that's kind of what he did in the early 50s mm -hmm. and and then he got a few you know little bit parts in movies and then left he was at universal for seven years and then at that point he kind of did decide he did want to be an actor mm. and the first big break was a small role on the tv show maverick and the real big break was playing rowdy yates on rawhide yeah I don't think I've ever watched an episode of Rawhide in my life. <laughs> I've seen a couple in uh, when they show them on uh, Nick at Night or whatever those shows that oh those channels that show the old uh, westerns. And it's funny, my understanding, like I said, I haven't watched it, is that he played kind of the dumb guy that was always getting in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny, it's so weird yeah. to think of like one of the toughest tough guys in movie history. Yeah was the guy that had to get rescued. Right. Um, and in the early 60s, he gets sent this offer to do this script that wasn't written in proper format to make a Western in Italy. And he basically went, you know what? I get a free trip to Europe. What the hell? Yeah. And he looked at the script and went, wait, this is Yojimbo. I love Yojimbo. Mm -hmm. And that is a fistful of dollars. Right. And that changed his life. Yeah, I mean, because he had been kind of struggling a little bit, trying to get, trying to break through to get those lead roles and no one really saw him as anything right. uh because of the character that he played in, in rawhide and also they just he hadn't established himself and no one would give him a chance back then because he's an unusual looking lead yeah. you know uh and so when he went and did those westerns yeah they absolutely changed his life forever forever of course and and that uh, you know fistful of dollars few dollars more and of course the good the bad and the ugly yeah um, but you know what? I've seen I've seen them all several times. I haven't seen them in a long time. Really? I know we have requests for them. I think uh, we probably should hit them at some point. We should do the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a four-hour podcast, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> um, and Sergio Leone is one of I think two huge influences on him. And one of the big things that happened was he grew up working in the Hollywood world of westerns. Mm. This is how you make a western. And when he gets to Italy, suddenly 
they're not doing things that way. Yeah. And it just opens up his mind to the ability to experiment, to do different things, to not approach stuff in the same old way. Yeah. And of course, suddenly now he's a big, huge star. Mm -hmm. And Hollywood sees him as sort of the ultimate tough guy. And that's the kind of movies he gets cast in. Yeah. And in doing some of those films, he meets Don Siegel. And that's going to be, the, uh, I think, an incredible friendship and a huge influence on him. They make several movies together, uh, including the first Dirty Harry movie. Hmm. And that is what takes him from big star to the biggest star. Right. He was the biggest star in the world for a while mm -hmm. doing those Dirty Harry movies. Uh, and, and, and he thinks that's sort of his most... The character that he's played that is the most like him. <laughs> that's what he says. Interesting. And that's also where we get, you know, some of those great quotes. And, and maybe I'll even cut into the... I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Those are, those are great, great moments yep. in the film. Um, and one of the things he learned from Siegel is Don Siegel was one of the most efficient, calmest, budget-conscious, uh, time-conscious filmmakers he ever met. And, what, and this guy really became a mentor and taught him that a lot of the crazy excess of filmmaking, according to Don Siegel and according to Clint Eastwood, mm. is really about insecurity. It's about ego and insecurity and calmness, efficiency, mm. practicality. That's really the way to make a movie, which is why Eastwood is not my favorite director. Mm. But in terms of directorial philosophy, he is my favorite director. Yeah. In his approach to being uh, working with the same people over and over again, being calm and mellow on the set, being um, efficient, cost conscious, kind to everybody he works with. That's the kind of person, that's what I try to teach my students to be. Yeah. And uh, his first movie that he directs is Play Misty For Me, which I saw once a long time ago. It's a weird film. Really weird film. Mm -hmm. um, in 1975, he directs Iger Sanction. Yeah. And this is where my connection to him starts. Oh, okay. Because Iger Sanction, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a big climbing movie, rock climbing movie. And uh, the person I've talked about many, many times on the show, Mike Hoover, made a film called Solo, which is a rock climbing short mm. that is, he was nominated for an Academy Award for. Eastwood saw it, loved it, said, I want that guy to teach me how to climb rocks. So Hoover came onto the show. He was Eastwood's body double for all the rock climbing. Mm -hmm. He did all the coordinating for all the rock climbing and brought in all the climbers. And they became really good buddies. So they've been friends for years and years and years. And now I have to tell a story because it's just such a dramatic story in Hoover's life, and it's a really important story in Hollywood, mm. which is that he, Eastwood and Hoover and Frank Wells, who was the president of Disney at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, and Beverly, who's Hoover's wife, and Hoover says she was a like he was a world class rock climber. He says Beverly outclassed him in every way. Mm. She was the best. They all decide to go helicopter skiing because they're all buddies. Because I guess when you're rich in Hollywood, <laughs> this is the kind of thing you can go do. Yes. So they have two helicopters. They go off to the, the Rockies somewhere, mm -hmm. and they're skiing all day. And at the end of the day, Eastwood, Frank Wells' son, and a couple of other people get in one helicopter. Frank Wells, Hoover, his wife Beverly, and the pilot get in another helicopter. They take off. They get up about 200 feet in the air. Ice gets sucked into the engine. The engine goes out. The helicopter crashes. And everyone on that helicopter except Hoover is killed. Wow. 
So that's when Frank Wells died, and he was the president of Disney. He's a hugely important moment of Hollywood. Good God. Hoover lying in the snow, broken neck. His he can see his ankle bone coming out through a ski mm. ski uh, boot. Watches his wife die next to him. Oh, and that's in '94. Um, and so this is a huge like it's really funny. I remember reading one of the Pixar books about the history of Pixar. Mm-hmm. Frank Wells was a huge defender of Pixar. He's who brought Pixar to Disney. Right. And so when he died, right in the middle of making Toy Story. It was a shattering moment in Pixar, and they start talking about this guy, Mike Hoover. And it was so weird to be reading this book that had nothing to do with my good friend yeah. and hearing the story of how his wife died and how he was injured. Mm-hmm. Um, and so since then, he and Eastwood are still really good friends. And I'm fairly often on email threads with correspondence with Eastwood. Wow. I've never met him. Hmm. I've never spoke to him. I know he knows who I am hmm. because I know he's seen the films that Hoover and I have made together. Right. And I know there's been conversation about, and there's been maybe 10 times that Hoover has been coming to LA from Wyoming and said, Hey, we're going to go have lunch with Eastwood. You want to come along? And I go, yeah. Yeah. And it's never happened. Oh, you know, so it's this person who is in my circle, right. But who I have never met. Interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe Hoover can pass on this podcast to him. I was thinking, I'll tell you, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> It'd be nice to have, I wonder what movie, Eastwood would want to talk about. Yeah, that would be, be that would be a fascinating thing. Well, I will classic. Movie. I'll tell you what. I will write Hoover. And Please I'll do. Ask him. Yeah. That'd be great. Um, so after Iger sanction, which maybe isn't a seminal film in his life, he makes Outlaw Josie Wales, which is. Yeah, and that's really a turning point. I think that's the moment he really becomes a director. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes on. The list is so fascinating. Every which way but loose. <laughs> Which is his willingness to t- make fun of himself. Mm-hmm. Then one that I think is one of your favorites, Heartbreak Ridge. Yeah, Heartbreak I love Heartbreak Ridge. Yeah. Quietly one of my favorite 80s films and one of my favorite films that deals with the military. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, uh, and it's funny, I get another one I haven't seen in a long time. It's a powerful movie. Mm-hmm. And he, he, the thing about Eastwood that we're, we start to see through Any Which Way But Loose and then Heartbreak Ridge, he better than any other actor I can think of is comfortable growing older. Yes. And comfortable with not looking good. Yeah. You know, showing it. Yeah. Showing his age and showing character that, that are sort of, di- mm-hmm. he is not addicted to being dirty, Harry and the no name man or anything like that yeah. for his life. He's like, no, I'm willing to do other stuff. And that really brings us to unforgiven, yeah. um, which is where we are now, which I think is the key transition moment in his career. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about pre-production. Sure. So I knew that David Peoples wrote this script and I knew that Eastwood had gotten it and felt he wasn't old enough for it and held on for a long time. What I didn't know was how early the script was written and what inspired it, which is David Peoples wrote it in 1976. Wow. Right after seeing Taxi Driver. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. And the more I've thought about the connection between Taxi Driver Mm. and Unforgiven... They are really close. Hmm. It, it, I mean, they're not the same movie in any way. Right. But in terms of the darkness, in terms of the lack of a moral landscape, mm-hmm. in terms of the flawed, complicated character that you are both drawn to and repulsed by, yeah. there's a lot there. And which makes me kind of go, oh, part of why we love Unforgiven is that it's a 70s film. Yeah. It's not a 90s film. It exists in this moral gray area, mm-hmm. you know, coming out of the 80s. We hadn't seen that kind of film in a long time. Agreed. Um, so apparently the script got sent to, to Eastwood's office. His reader, because they don't read every script that comes in, read it, hated it. It didn't even send it to him. Huh. 
And then it got bought for a while about Coppola. And then Eastwood's doing another movie and is looking for someone to do a rewrite. Peoples get submitted. And he says, well, I need to see a writing sample. And so they send him Unforgiven as a writing sample. <laughs> and that's when he reads it. And that's when he goes, oh, I have to do this movie. Yeah. Cut to 11 years later when he actually feels he's old enough to do it. Um, and just a couple things more about this. It's all shot on location in Alberta. Uh, Eastwood loves to shoot on location. He loves to be in real places. Yeah. He, he the, the set is all built for the movie. It took 32 days to build that town. Mm -hmm. And there's miles and miles of nothingness all around it. So it would look, you know, 360 degrees of no civilization. Yeah. And Eastwood was so insistent that they keep it pristine. He didn't even want trucks driven in there. So when they went to set in the morning, they rode horses and carriages to get to set. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Um, uh, and one more thing about his crew, his crew has been with him forever. Mm -hmm. They're guys that have been shooting to this day, have worked with him for 40 years. Yep. So the guy who's the DP, Jack Green, he worked on Play Misty for me as a oh. camera operator. And he had been camera operator or DP on his on Eastwood Films for his whole career. Wow. That says a lot about him. Mm -hmm. It says a lot about loyalty. It says a lot about how those sets are run. Mm -hmm. It says a lot about what his priorities are. I, I just really, really admire it. Yeah. And... Unlike a lot of directors, he is happy to take ideas from anybody. And what he says, I like this quote. He says, he says, I want to take ideas from everything, everyone so I can steal credit for them later. <laughs> um, the other thing he says that I like is he says, what he says is that a movie crew is a platoon and you're the platoon leader, mm. but you're a platoon leader with a backpack on your back, just like everybody else. I love that attitude. Yeah. You know, and for a guy who's a movie star, that's pretty rare yeah i think yeah um you want to get in the movie sure let's do it we open on just a beautiful golden hour shot of a house in the distance and a tree and a man with a with a pickaxe probably digging a ditch mm. and we see some text on the screen that explains that there was a young woman and she married a terrible, awful, mean killer. Mm -hmm. And he stopped being that mean killer. And then she died, but not as his hands as her mother expected, but of smallpox. Yeah. And that's 1878. And then we fade to black. Yeah. And we come back, and it's raining, and it's 1880, and we're in Big Whiskey, Wyoming. We hear some music. We hear some voices. We see some sex. Mm -hmm. And then we see a woman being attacked by a man. Right. We hear it first. We hear it first. And then we see it happening. And we don't even actually see her being struck. We see it from the man. We see it from her point of view, seeing the man on top of her slicing and slicing and slicing until they get uh, a shorty to come up and he puts the gun on the guy and they yeah. stop. And they pull him off. Yeah, pull him off. It's a terrifying moment. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that I think you're right, Steve. This is a really interesting uh, thing you mentioned earlier, that a 70s point of view. This is a 70s beginning to a film. It's very harsh. It's very uh, brutal in its yep. opening. Uh, it's uncompromising in the sex that it's showing. And then uh, the violence that it shows in that moment is is uh, um, just uh, just unsettling to start off the movie with this, this way, especially with such a pleasant beginning with that, uh, uh, like you said, yeah. the uh, sun, beautiful shot. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful shot yeah. There, there, there's a thing Coppola said that I know I've said before on the podcast, but, mm. but I think that really applies here, which is when he was doing The Godfather, he said, I don't want any of the violence to be pornographic. Right. And I think that's what this film understands is mm -hmm. that there's a lot of violence and it feels like real violence. Yep. It does not feel like fun. It's not exciting. It's right. not thrilling. It is brutal and painful and awful. 
and real. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Gene Hackman didn't want to, doesn't like doing violent films, which yeah. was an interesting thing. And he, at first he read the script and went, well, I don't want to do that. Yeah, he resisted the, being in the movie. And then he goes, oh no, this violence is doing something else. Right. And that's what finally drew him into it. And I love that you have a 70s guy like Gene Hackman. Absolutely. Movie, and yeah. Richard Harris, both yeah. who did, who really made their bones in the 70s. Totally. Um, and both are going to turn in some performances that are phenomenal. Yeah. And speaking of Gene Hackman, he's walking up to the place now, kind of hearing a little bit of details about what's happening. He plays Little Bill Daggett, the sheriff. He's my third favorite villain ever. Wow. Yeah. Ever. He is fascinating. Uh huh. Because he is unquestionably the villain, mm-hmm. but he also is someone that you're—I don't want to say you like him. But you're drawn to him in a weird way. Right. That's why you cast Gene Hackman. Yeah. You, you want the public to somewhat identify with this man and be okay with somewhat forgiving some of the things he does. And then you decide for yourself if he deserves a comeuppance or not. And well, I, that's yeah. what I like about the ending, well, which we'll I get think, to. Obviously. Yeah. And I, th- I think that it relates too to when we get to English Bob, to Richard Harris's yeah. character, like the contrast between those two people feeds this sort of, how do I feel about little Bill? Right. And uh, it also, if you know anything about Western, Steve, it's also the fact that a lo- in, in the history of Westerns, a lot of former criminals, former bandits, former right? uh, violent people became uh, sheriffs and deputies and the law of the land because they knew how to best track down the criminals that they once ran with. Right. They knew and, the methods and other places to hide. And that's the kind of guy this is. This yeah. town has turned to this tough guy to to make their town safe. Mm-hmm. And he comes into this uh, bar, whorehouse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, first, he's, first he wants to find out just if she's dead, which right. she's not. Right. And then the, we have these guys, we go to where the guys are tied up. And he calls her a bullwhip, yeah. which I guess is a regular thing for him. Mm-hmm. And one of the prostitutes is Strawberry Alice. And she seems to be sort of the leader of the group. Yeah, Frances Fisher. Uh, who's great in the film. Who was, I think, married or dating Clint Eastwood at the time. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Long relationship, those two. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, she's great in the film. Yes. And, and she's like, is that all they're going to get? A whipping? That's all they get after what they've done? Whipping ain't no little thing, Alice. But what they've done, they can Alice! talk about more than... Shut up! Because she wants them dead. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Because he only says uh, they can bring some ponies in in the when the winter thaws. You can go, but bring back some ponies. The guy who did the cutting, bring back five. The guy who stood by and let it happen, you bring back two. And that angers Starry Alice because she thinks they deserve better. And this is the thing that's interesting to watch this film in 2018, Steve, because you're looking at a, at a person who's representing the law, right? Who is doling out punishment that to the people who are the victims, the women who are the victims don't feel is appropriate, that it's too small of a punishment. And they're right. Well, and let's be really and clear. Right. And what uh, 100%. Says, so, sorry, I don't want to finish the point. And he says, these are just working boys, right. which is the excuse you, you, you still hear nowadays. Yeah. Like that Stanford guy, that guy who raped that girl is, oh, he's an excellent swimmer. He's a blah, blah, blah. He doesn't deserve the same thing that somebody else does. No bullshit. And I think that's what I like about this movie is that it it does not walk away from the abuses of power that Little Bill does because this is what happens when you hire a former criminal to all of a sudden be a deputy or a sheriff. Well, and to be really clear on what's happening here, he says... Hell, Alex. It like they was uh, tramps or loafers or bad men. You know, they were just hardworking boys that was foolish. 
If they was given over to wickedness in a regular way, I'd understand. Of course. Alice? You mean like prostitutes, is what she says. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you that's mean like a, a moment. Yeah. Well, and I want to point out one other thing about this as well, yeah. is that it starts off as we're going to whip the guys yes. as, as punishment, retribution for what he did to this woman. Right. Then Skinny, who's the owner of the bar. Skinny, sorry, not Shorty. Skinny, yeah, you're right. Owner of the bar and, and, and essentially the owner, the way he treats them of these prostitutes, says... Little Bill, quit and go settle this. No, no. It's the lawful contract between me and Delana Fitzgerald to cut more. I brought her clear from Boston, paid her expenses and all, and I got a contract that represents an investment of capital. Property. Damage. Property. But you figure nobody want to fuck her now, right? And that's when the idea of the horses, the ponies aren't going to the women. The ponies are going going to skinny. skinny. Right, exactly. Because essentially the women are treated as chattel. Yeah. Is that that's the thing. Is And that is what is so... So, so, Because when Gene Hackman comes in, he's Gene Hackman. Right. We kind of are with him. And then this moment that you describe is like, oh, I don't like the way that went. Right. Yeah, he's not a villain. For, he doesn't. He's not mustache twirling or anything. It's a slow progression. Yeah, it's a slow progression. Well, and he thinks he's doing the right thing. Yeah, he thinks he's the 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 sheriff that's keeping order in this town. But you also know that he has that kind of old school male judgment of the fact right. that they're whores. He thinks they're lesser than. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I think in the way these women are shot throughout the film mm-hmm. is not a- anything but lesser than. Right. They are human and complicated mm-hmm. and powerful. And yeah, they're, they're a powerful presence. Mm-hmm. It's the next morning, and they're, the women are tending to Delilah, who's the one who got cut up. Right. And there's this thing that uh, Strawberry Alice, Francis Fisher says, they love. She says, Just because we let them smelly fools ride us like horses don't mean we gotta let them brand us like horses. Maybe we ain't nothing but whores, but we, by God, we ain't horses. Just the use of the word whores and horses, which sounds so similar, is is kind of just beautiful writing. Yeah. And the and this is the thing. They are they are rebelling against we are not things. Mm-hmm. We are we are humans. She's essentially starting a union, bro. Totally. In that moment with those girls. And they're pooling their money together to you know, to uh, uh, put a, a bounty on this yeah. guy and hire a killer to come and kill these two dudes. They're going that's the thing. They're organizing themselves to do this, right? right? Behind Skinny's back, behind Little Bill's back, they're taking the law, in essence, into their own hands. Well, and this is the thing about this film, is that you have these women who are clearly abused, yep. and, and Delilah physically abused, and they are treated as property by Skinny. Mm-hmm. They are dismissed by the sheriff. And then they, in response to all that, they choose to do this thing, which seems righteous, right? but is also what puts into play a whole bunch of people are going to die because of these choices and the other thing that we you know we're going to talk about as we go along there were two guys involved one guy did the cutting yeah and one guy was just there but he didn't pull him off either he didn't pull him off i'm not saying he's a good guy he's an accomplice i'm not well and this is because a lot of what this you know you have to think about in the film is like what is justice right you know because they, they, the the prostitutes put the same punishment on both these guys. Yeah, but I would I would push back a little bit of what you said. Uh, where the, these girls make a decision causes the whole no little Bill messing up the punishment causes everything that happens afterwards and is the reason everybody dies. Little Bill not doing the right 
punishment, Little Bill not doing the punishment that is humanly correct. He buys into Skinny's perception of the situation and does treat these women as lesser yes. than and property. So therefore, he accepts the exchange and the price for what Skinny wants. And what should have happened is these guys should have been prosecuted for assault and for attacking a woman in this way. Well, this is well, I, if this I, was a woman yeah. not of ill repute. They would have absolutely been in jail. Well, and and this is also why. We should we should be a, a country of laws and not men. Right, is no individual. This is why you should have a system. Yeah, this thing has happened. You go into the system, and the system hopefully has checks and balances yeah, to make yeah, sure yeah. that justice is served. Yeah. Just having even a person much better than little, little Bill, humans are still flawed. Right, and we don't make decisions in logical, reasonable ways. Exactly. We're back at the farm, mm. and we get to meet uh, Will Money, Clint Eastwood. And where do we meet him? Where do we meet the hero of our film? <laughs> the most terrifying, mean son of a bitch in the history yeah. of the Old West? Yeah. Tending with the pigs and the slop and the dirt yeah. with his two kids. Yeah. It is as undistinguished an introduction. Like, you compare it to how we meet his character in the Sergio Leone movie. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Or how you meet Dirty Harry. Or even High Plains Drifter. He yeah. comes out of the yeah. haze of the, of the sun. Yeah. yeah. He's just in there with the slop, and he goes down. And as he's in the mud... Uprides the Schofield kid. Yeah. <laughs> the you, Schofield kid. You don't look like no rootin', tootin', son of a bitch and cold blooded assassin. Say what? Say what? <laughs> uh, and this is James Wolvet, who's great in this movie. And never did another movie after yeah. this. He's, He's so good. I did a lot of research on this. Is like I said, this is well, uh, this is my second favorite western behind the searchers. I've done so much research on this film. Uh, this kid never worked again. Wow. He tried to keep going with. He said he hated Hollywood so much and what he had to do and the auditions, everything like that. The last time they had any kind of thing on him, he was a manager of a, a ski do place selling jet skis and shit in hmm. some place in California, I think, or in Hawaii. And he just, he, he'll occasionally get an interview and he'll just say, it was a great experience. I never want to do it again, which of course mirrors what the kid goes That's through. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Listen, anyone who comes to Hollywood and looks around at this town and goes, that ain't for me. Yeah. That person deserves praise. <laughs> yes, I agree. That person, they are, they have you know. every reason to, yeah. to not want to do this. I agree. And he, he starts bringing up all the, like, are you the guy that killed this guy and did that? Uh, and, and I love uh, Eastwood's just sort of non-response response to all this. Yeah. You know, and the kids are there because the, they got hog fever. Mm -hmm. And he invites the guy inside. He invites the Schofield kid inside. Mm -hmm. and, and it ends up he knows who he is because he's Pete, whoever Pete is, his right. nephew, someone he rode with back in the day. Yeah. Like I was saying, you don't look no meaner than hell, cold-blooded damn killer. Maybe I ain't. Yeah, well, Uncle Pete says you was the meanest goddamn son of a bitch alive. And if I ever wanted a partner for a killing, you were the worst one. Mean and the best. I'm a damn killer myself, except uh, I ain't killed as many as you because of my youth. Schofield kid is what they call me. And what's funny about the Schofield kid, he is a Western archetype. Yes. He is the the young gun who wants to prove himself, whose whose stories are maybe bigger than the truth. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things how this movie plays with those archetypes and then deconstructs them a bunch. Yeah. And he's still, you can see the kid still struggling with like, are you really this guy? Because mm -hmm. either you aren't the guy or those stories I've been hearing, maybe they were bullshit. Yeah. Because how could this guy rooting around with the pigs right. be this 
famous outlaw that I've been hearing about. But that's youth versus age, isn't it? Like, youth thinks you should be radiating that like 24-7 until you're dead. Right. And age knows I can call on it when I need it, but I no longer need to walk around swaggering everywhere I go. It's there when I always liken it to the to the Yoda moment in uh, I think it's either in uh, the Attack of the Clones or in the first one in Force Awakens when he has the fight with Dooku. He is like hobbling around on his cane, and as soon as Dooku goes, "Let's get this on," he drops the cane and he right. is flipping around all over the place. That's economy of movement, and you learn that as you get older. You know what I'm saying? People see me sometimes slowly walk around places. It's because I just need to get to where I'm going. There's no rush. <laughs> when I need to rush, I'll rush. But like that kind of stuff is what you learn as you get older, which is why I like this whole int- intro between these two characters because it is the Skullfield kids all piss and vinegar, and uh, money has actually done it. Well, I'm going to say two. To show it off. I'm going to say two things about that. Yeah. Everything you said can be true. Sometimes we're just old. <laughs> <laughs> true, but we find out. And the, and the other thing about it is, this isn't that guy. On some level. Right. Well, sure. It's always there, though. He has changed. But obviously, what we find out later is that's always been there. Well, but this is the big question of like, Mm -hmm. one of the big differences, I think, between in comparing Taxi Driver to this, Mm -hmm. we're in Travis Bickle's thoughts. Oh, sure. We know what he's thinking. William Money, he is... Yeah, he is impenetrable. Yeah, it's very hard to go like like, and you get glimpses. Mm-hmm. What you get is that there's all this stuff going on inside, mm-hmm. and a lot of conflict and anger and repressed feelings, and yeah. you know, love for his wife and what that relationship was. And we don't actually get let in, really. No, you know, um, and, and it's funny because the kid wants to no, he wants that bad guy because yeah. he says his uncle told him if he ever had to go do some killing that this was the guy. You know, this is the guy. I mean, I mean that in a really good way. Right, of right, right. It's just a really funny moment. And because he's here, he wants a partner because. I'm heading up north in through Nebrera up to Wyoming. Gonna kill a couple of no good cowboys. For what? For cutting up a lady. Cut up her face. Cut her eyes out. Cut her ears off. Hell, even cut her teeth. Jesus. Baby cut her teats. And this is the first thing is did did they says it I think at one point he says he cut her eyes out. Yeah, well no, he he says that later. Uh yeah. money well, does money does when he's talking to well, Morgan Freeman's character later. Well, and this is the thing is that the story that the Schofield kid we were there. Yeah. We saw what happened to her. <laughs> of course. This is not what happened to her. Right. So already the because the reason that part of the reason that these people say, yeah, we can go do this is because of the heinousness of the crime. Mm-hmm. But they actually don't know what the crime is because the crime is getting exaggerated along right. the way. Right. Um, That's the brilliance of this film, Steve. It's constantly deconstructing the old archetypes yeah. that we've known for years about Westerns. Yep. And Will's response is, I ain't like that anymore, kid. It's whiskey done as much, much as anything else. I ain't had a drop in over 10 years. My wife, she cured me of that. Cured me of drink and wickedness. Did his wife cure him? I would say to a degree, yes. But like I said earlier, that gear is always inside anyone if they have ever used it. It just needs a certain number of factors to come together for it to come out. He changed his life because of her. And that does happen. A lot of people find somebody who sees through their anger, sees through the reason for their wickedness, to use his term, 
and see what's underneath. And that's what they fall in love with and then endeavor to change. And the person can change if they want to change. And that's what I like about this whole beginning of him. He is, there's nothing about him that radiates that he could be this kind of stone cold killer, killed women and children and whatever. And he's just this like old dude trying to figure out how to farm these pigs and live without his wife, which I'm sure he's still recovering from the loss of her. Oh, I think so. I think he's carrying that around with him. Oh yeah. There's an expression uh, that I don't particularly like. That's an old, older expression in, uh, talking about treatment of addiction mm-hmm. and the expression is that someone is a dry drunk mm. and what a dry drunk means is that it's someone who has stopped drinking but they haven't dealt with the essential reasons that for them drinking in the surface good place so they, they haven't really uh they haven't healed yeah they're just not drinking right, right. Now. um and to some degree i think that's like will through this woman mm-hmm. made these choices and he is standing by these choices mm-hmm. but there's something inside him yeah, and that's what the I think the sometimes people forget in the analysis of this movie is that his arc is an incredible arc. And what he, oh, yeah. what he finally comes to terms with about himself is what we all need to do once we come to terms with our past. Uh, and we'll talk about that as the film goes along. But in this moment, he is, yes, you're right. I don't think he's come to terms with the loss of her fully. No. I don't think he's come to terms because now he's like, well, she was my barrier to all this other stuff. And I'm purposely way out here in the middle of nowhere with these hogs and my kids. So I don't want to be tempted by anything around me. If I just keep stay here, I will be able to do exactly what she wants me to do and what she always wanted me to do, which is not get involved in this kind of stuff. Yet this kid comes out of nowhere, essentially out of nowhere and uh, wants to get him involved in this. And he finds the excuse eventually to go. Well, and there's a big difference between you have the love of your life with you mm-hmm. and with them, they don't want you to do this thing and you're right. with them. Right. Now they've gone away and you only have the memory of them and you're trying to stay true to that. Yeah. Um, but needless to say, he says no to the kid. He does. Kid rides away. He does tell him where he's heading and that, and that it's a thousand dollars. Also don't tell anyone else about the reward because he doesn't want anyone else coming along. <laughs> and Will goes back to work. Yeah. Gets knocked down in the mud again by those hogs he looks out after where that kid rode off. Mm-hmm. Um, we, and the, his daughter says, I think more hogs have the fever, which means they're in trouble. Yeah, they're in financial trouble. And we're back in our town, back in Big Whiskey, and they're bringing in the ponies. Yep. And they brought in the ponies that they said they would bring, and Skinny's taking them, and the ladies come out, and what do they do? They throw some rocks. Well, he tries to offer them uh, an extra pony, to make up for Delilah's cuts. Well, so they throw rocks and they scatter them first. And then yeah. the guy comes back with this really good looking pony. And this is the young guy. Yeah. Uh, and he offers him to Delilah to make up for what happened. Right. And then they cause, then they proceed to still throw, afterwards still throw mud and mud balls and rocks at him. Well, and... Because and, 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 they don't want... They, she goes, you just offer... You you think it's a pony? You brought her a pony? Mangy pony. A mangy pony? And she's, she's not mangy, ma'am. Yeah. She's the best of the lot. And then they drive him away. And they drive him away. Get out of here. I do like the way... Listen, what you said earlier, Steve, is a really good point. The way they're shot, the way they're framed, the way the wind goes through their hair, these are hard women. Yep. And uh, when they fight, they fight together. They're always in motion, in movement throughout the movie. They're in a group together, As a pack. Yeah. But they don't always feel the same way. No. Because I... I, Because there's a shot of Delilah... 
who's yeah. silently watching no, all this happen. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think when they're raising the money, she's silently kind of watching it happen. Right. I don't think she's for all this. No. I think she has mixed feelings. Mm-hmm. I think there's no question how Strawberry Alice feels. Right. She is angry. Yeah. And she rejects that pony. Mm-hmm. But I think that guy trying to give the pony is trying to do the right thing. He's, he's trying. He's trying to make up for it. Sure. You know, and and this is the thing is that the 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 and and this is where we get into some of the problems with this movie yeah. is the level of crime that the guy that cut Delilah committed and uh-huh. the level of crime that the other guy committed are not the same. No, they're not, you know, and he has tried in this moment to do the right thing. And the shot of Delilah watching, I think if strawberry Alice hadn't been there, she would have taken that pony. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and we can't, Yeah. you know, we just, I'm judging off of a facial experience. Yeah. 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 Well, I think she's also processing it. PTSD rolls into that situation too. Absolutely. That kind of attack on your face. Like what, what does that yeah. do to you? Yeah. And as as Skinny said, that she can't be what she was before. Mm-hmm. You know, it has literally changed her entire life. Yep. Um, and that's a lot to process as well. Exactly. Uh, back with Clint, he's looking at a picture of his wife, and then he finds his own gun, and goes out to shoot, sets up a can on a on his <laughs> post, takes a shot, misses. Yeah. And misses and misses, and he cannot hit that can. Yep. <laughs> I love that he goes back inside, grabs a shotgun. He blows that can away. Yep. And there's a great shot of one of the of the kids talking. They're like, "Did that? Did Pa used to kill folks?" <laughs> and I wonder, like, what they know. Yeah. I think they must know a little bit. Well, Schofield kid asked all those questions. Yeah. They must have their suspicions. Yeah. And they he must have had conversations with his wife too. So. Well, she knew. Like I think well, she knew he was a killer. But they must have had this conversation. They might yeah. have this conversation from those kids. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they'd be pretty. I mean, the kid, mom died three years ago, so yeah. they'd be pretty young. But yes, um, next morning he shaves close, mm-hmm. goes out to the grave, puts down some flowers, and then saddles up his horse. Yeah. Um, I love horse casting, by the way. This is a thing people oh, don't yeah. think about. It's like you got to find the right horse. Mm-hmm. And this horse is not that big, huge, gorgeous. This is a what they describe it as a gray, flea-bitten old nag. That's what he's writing. <laughs> yeah. And the horse had been saddled in a while. Yeah. And he has a tough time getting on that horse, and he finally gets knocked down. Yep. Once again, this this the this radiating radiating this idea that he is just not what he used to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, well, and this is the thing is that uh, it's funny. We did Terminator Two recently, and we mm. talked about Arnold, and you, you always need your heroes to be underdogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, yeah, we love to see our heroes do awesome stuff, but. What's more important to make them look weak on some levels yeah. because then they have more to overcome. And that's certainly what's happening now. Yeah. Can't shoot the can. Can't even get on his damn horse. Mm-hmm. And then he tells some kids, kill the chickens if you have to, take care of the hogs, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Yeah. It's so crazy that that used to be the world. Yep. Like, I, you know, if I leave my kid at my house alone for 10 minutes, I'm a child abuser, <laughs> you know, and they live their kids alone at some farm while they go off to kill people for, yep. they're miles and miles away from anything. We're too soft, Steve. We are too soft. Well, Clint Clint would definitely agree with that, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I'm sure he would. Clint would definitely agree. And I love, by the way, that his conversation about why the horse is getting out of the way, and he says, Horses, getting even with me for the sins of my youth. In my youth, before I met you, your dear departed ma, I used to be weak and given to mistreating animals. Come on. I used to be able to cuss and whip a horse like this, but your ma, rest your soul, showed me the error of my ways. Well, that's the thing about him, right? You, you, it's Clint Eastwood, so you default and think he's an intelligent guy. He might not be that smart. 
And he was a criminal and he was a leader of this gang, but like... But we don't she, really know what... Yeah. We know he did horrible stuff. That's right. You can put whatever you yeah. want, whatever uh, narrative is there. Uh, that's what I think. He's the leader of a gang, and, uh, of this gang, and then he did disbanded when he went off with her. Um, but Ned certainly didn't move too far away from him. No. And so a piece of him, his gang was always just around the corner right. there. And so what he has here, all the stuff he's saying to the kids or stuff that probably... His wife has told him to say to the kids before, maybe. Oh, I'm sure. And that, so he's just trying to make it seem like this is all, you know, this don't do what I did, blah, 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 just well, standard parenting. And I also think there is, I think that anger towards the horse and the pigs, mm. that's right there. Oh, yeah. This is the layer on top. You know, he's essentially saying, you know, my instinct is to punch you right yeah, in the face. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's talking but to I'm, himself. Yeah, but I'm told that I shouldn't do that. Right. So I'm not doing that. You're right. But that's what he, I mean, it's right there. Yeah. Now Skinny has found out about this reward offered. He's kind of asking where they got the money. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do when somebody comes to collect? Huh? You going to hump them? You going to hump them a thousand times? And basically calls them, you stupid bitches. You stupid bitches. Mm. Because he sees that this could cause all sorts of trouble. And they, don't, they might not even have the money. And what are they going to do? Right. Um, and we head off to, to uh, little Bill. He's working on his house. <laughs> I love this running joke yeah. of him being a bad carpenter. Right. Uh, hits his thumb with the hammer as uh, Skinny walks up. Right. And <laughs> there's sort of, even Skinny can say, this house isn't, there's some problems here. <laughs> and then he tells them about the $1,000 rewards uh, for killing those boys. Yeah. And immediately, little Bill knows how bad this is going to yeah. be. You're inviting violence into the town. Hell, the word's probably got all the way down to Texas by now. Shit, Bill, I guess nobody's going to come clear from Texas. You sure those whores got all that money? Well, you know how women can lie. Knock them around a little bit, ask them where the money is. They ain't got none. But they could have squirreled away that much to five of them. And Will writes up to Ned. Sees first Ned's wife, who's a Native American. Mm-hmm. And then, only two trees. Yeah. yeah. And Ned is uh, Morgan Freeman. Yeah. The casting of him is so amazing in this role. You know, and, and what's really interesting, I remember having an argument with a friend who didn't like this movie because they didn't feel there was enough dealing with race and Morgan Freeman. And I don't agree. Like, I, I don't agree either because they're just friends. Mm-hmm. What you deal with race, there's an undercurrent to it later in the film, which we'll get to much later in the film. But it doesn't have to be here in this moment. They're just friends. And there were black cowboys. Yeah, there were all through the West. There were black people who worked out there. Did and there were relation friends between white and black cowboys. Uh, you can find that all in any historical book on the West. So it wasn't because it wasn't what was needed at this time. They're going for what they're going for. Well, and I think there's one moment where Ned is in the bar where there's sort of a reaction from yeah. the crowd there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of all there is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's brave and and cool that that's how they handled it yeah and we find out that they were partners and we're talking about these guys that need killing Mm -hmm. because they're they're evil men and ned's kind of like well we're not killers anymore yeah how long has it been since you fired a gun at a man will nine ten years eleven easy huh well i don't know that it was all that easy even back then we was young and full of beans that ain't you anymore, Will. And Will's kind of going, well, if they've done something wrong. Um, yes, he's trying to talk himself into it. Yeah. Well, this is the question. Yeah. So 
uh, Will has told, I think he has told himself two things mm -hmm. about why he's doing this. One thing is he looks at his kids and he looks at his farm and goes, I need to give these kids a better life and I could use this money to change their life. Right. And the other thing is that these are really evil men that did all these horrible things. And in Will's description, it's even worse than what yeah. he heard from the kid. Got her eyes out. And therefore, this is not a bad thing to do. Because he's rationalizing why he's going to violate. Because what's interesting about it, if you went, okay, I'm going to put two sins on the scale. Yeah. One of them is drinking and one of them is killing. Yeah. Which one's worse? Well, killing is obviously worse. Right. But he believes that he is still honoring his wife's wishes mm -hmm. by not drinking and not sleeping with a prostitute. Right. While he has already decided to kill a couple of guys. Yeah. That is, so there's some rationalization going on that's heavy. Yeah. You know. Kill two bad guys in his mind. Right. They're bad guys. Right. And it's going to be easy because killing is easy. Sure. In some way. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is the thing, too, is there is a version of Will where killing is easy. Sure. But that's not this guy at this moment. At this moment. Yeah. Of course, you know, Will, Claudia was alive. You wouldn't be doing this. And I think deep down, Will knows that's true. But rather than respond, he stands up, grabs his hat, and says... I suppose you'd mind looking in on my youngsters next week. I guess some hogs are trying to separate. Will? How long do you reckon you're going to be? Two weeks, I guess. And I love this framing by Eastwood. This is still my favorite film he's ever directed. Although Million Dollar Baby comes real close. Yeah. But the camera moving with Ned, pulling mm -hmm. back, and then we see that Spencer rifle above right. Ned's head. Yeah. And he says, Clint does, without even a hesitation, just, I, see, I see you still got that Spencer rifle. Ned doesn't look back. Yeah. Ned doesn't make it. And that's Morgan Freeman, who's a master actress, going, yeah. He's yeah. just a very simple, yeah. And I can still knock the eye out of the bird, a bird in flight. Exactly. Yeah. And then we know. Yeah. And of course. But why does Ned do it? See, we, we, we go through the ideas of why Clint does it, or Will Money does it. Why does Ned do it? I, yeah, I think I think for Ned, it's the romance of their youth. It's the friendship too. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I want one last time. If, if Will needs me, I want to be there, and I want to make one more, have one more adventure. Well, and it makes you go like, well, who was Will? Yeah, like what what did they do? We know they did a bunch of stuff, terrible stuff. And and it's like because Ned doesn't seem like a terrible stuff doing guy. Not now, but because he's old. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they head out, and of course, Will does still has trouble getting on that horse, and they ride off, and it's beautiful, you know, beautiful riding shots, beautiful western shots, and beautiful score, man. Oh yeah, throughout this whole movie, dude. And the score is James. I think it's James Newton Howard. Is that right? no, no, no? It's Lehman. I forget. Oh, okay, okay. And some of the themes, by the way, are Clint Eastwood. Oh wow. Yeah, he wrote some of the themes. He didn't. He didn't score the film. Interesting. Um, but I believe some of the themes are him. Okay. Um, I love they're at a campfire. Kind of get used to my bed. This ain't gonna be like no home. It ain't the only thing I'm gonna be missing, I tell you. And there's a pause, and then Will, I'm sorry. <laughs> because he realized, you know, Will's wife's dead. Yeah. But Ned's already like Ned's already talking about sex. Yeah. He's only been gone a day. Then he we talk about his wife, which is Sally, and that she gave him the evil eye. Mm -hmm. Um and the reason is is because she knew him back then. Yeah. She knew what no good son of a bitch I was. <laughs> she just ain't allowing that I've changed. Well, you know, Will. Ain't the same, Ned. Claudia, she straightened me up. Cleared me of drinking whiskey and all. Just because we're going on this killing, that don't mean I'm going to go back to being the way I was. And really, you know what? She was right to give me the mm -hmm. She was absolutely right. She knew what they were doing, where they were going, what was yep. going to happen. 
That's why when Ned leaves, they don't even say goodbye to each other, Sally Tutri's and Ned. There's just that kind of look. And he, like, does his hat, and she understands, you know? Yep. And then there's this moment. Will's kind of thinking for a moment, and he says, Ned, you remember that drover I shot through the mouth? And his teeth came out the back of his head. I think about him now and again. He didn't do anything to deserve to get shot. At least nothing I could remember when I sobered up. Ned is so uncomfortable having this conversation yeah. with Will. Because Ned's put it all away. Yeah. Will's the one. And that's the thing. Will's on some journey. He's on his journey here to come to terms with the things he's done, to really come to terms with the yeah. things he's done and understand who he really is now post the death of his wife. And, and this, and Will knew he had this reputation that people thought he would kill them out of pure meanness. Yeah. It, it, it's funny. <laughs> Do you remember the Time Life books? And there was like the Time Life World War II books. Oh, and yeah, you yeah, buy the, the Western ones. So there was the Western ones. Yeah. And the commercial for the Western one says, you know, it's talking about Billy the Kid who did this and mm. Jesse James who did this. And I remember the line that was, You meet the gunfighters. Men like John Wesley Harden, so mean he once shot a man just for snoring. Yeah, just for snoring. Yeah. I just remember, because that commercial played all the time. Yeah, when I, was I remember kid. that. That's the kind of guy he was. Yeah. He was so mean, he would shoot someone for any reason. You know what's interesting too, Steve, is this is his way to show that he could have been a villain in a Western oh, yeah. without actually being a villain. And when he oh. is, when he is at the end, not really a villain, but you see that his possibilities are there. Well, it's that, pretty harrowing. Terrifying. And uh, it's very reminiscent of Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time sure. in the West. It has sure. that vibe. Yeah, the absolutely terrifying character that he becomes. Yeah. But right now, Ned's like, well, you ain't that way no more. And Will's response is... That's right. I'm just a fella now. I ain't no different than anyone else. No more. <laughs> He's starting to talk himself into that yeah. narrative. Well, and it might almost sounds like some regret. You oh, know sure. what I mean? Like, oh, I'm just like everybody else. Oh, you think he's regretting that he's just like everybody else? I think I, I well, okay. this is the thing. It's hard to know what's going yeah. on inside to this me, guy. I, to me, I think he's telling himself things because he wants to believe them, but he knows. He only did the stuff that he did because he loved his wife so much. Right. It's, he still has that impulse. And you, yeah, no, I agree. Throughout the movie, watching it this time for this podcast, there are moments where it flashes up and comes back down, flashes yeah. up and comes back down. And well, it's very. Well, there's a war going on in mm -hmm. Film Month. Yes. There is a battle. Right. And, and I don't think he knows who he wants to win. Yeah. You know? Right. Which is um, why he's on this journey subconsciously. Yeah. Uh, we're on a train. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, English Bob. <laughs> This might be my favorite Richard Harris performance. I, I would argue that it could be. Absolutely. He is so fun and funny mm -hmm. and interesting and in a, just his own kind of movie. And yet chilling in his own way, too. Oh, yeah. And uh, we're talking about the assassination of President Garfield. Mm -hmm. And his contention is that if it would, you should have a king or a queen because no one would assassinate a king or a queen. One isn't that quick to shoot a king or a queen. The uh, majesty of royalty is... Your hands would just shake. <laughs> and 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 we see uh, Saul Rubinick, who is his uh, yeah. biographer. Who's fantastic. He is so good. Great smarmy of, little writer. He's one of those great odd character actors. There's a role of him. He's in Star Trek Next Generation for an episode yeah. that I just remember like, who is this person? Well, I remember him on Frasier. 
when he was Darlene's oh, love interest for so right. long, or Daphne's love interest yeah. for so long before Niles finally stepped in and, and, and they came together. But he was like such a jerk through that whole movie. And in true romance, he can play, he's great at playing stats he's a, all up and down the board. He's great. Yeah. And uh, as we're talking about this, there's someone on the train that takes some offense yeah. and calls him a son of a bitch. You're John Bull. Yeah. Yeah. And someone says, Shut up, Joe. What the hell's wrong with you, Thirsty? This dude, son of a bitch. Might be that this dude here is English Bob. He's the one who works for the railroad shooting Chinaman. Might be he's waiting for some crazy cowboy to touch his pistol so he can shoot him down. And it kind of comes up with, well, why don't we go shoot some pheasants for a dollar each? And they go out, and I think Bob wins like eight, yeah. eight to two or something. Eight to one. Eight he to one. Seven pounds. Seven, seven dollars. Yeah, seven dollars. Seven dollars. Um, I still think pretty good shooting for a John Bull. <laughs> that guy's funny, too. Yeah, very funny. <laughs> I love his response. Well, no doubt your aim was affected by your grief over the injury to your president. He's such a jerk. He's a wonderful jerk. Uh, yes. And then we're with him in, like, the stagecoach, and he's still talking smack oh, yeah. about presidents oh, yeah. and assassinations. He speculates that it's the climate that induces assassination. <laughs> And as they're riding into Big Whiskey, they go right by a sign that says, no firearms. Which Saul Rubinick sees. Oh, he does? Yes. Ah. And he uh. wants to stop English Bob from telling a story, but he can't quite bring himself to stop him. It's very hard to stop those kinds of people. Yes. They're going to tell their stories. Outrageous characters. Uh, they get out of the stagecoach, and mm -hmm. deputy comes up, asks for their far firearms. Young kid, yeah. Yeah. He says, oh, we don't have any. It's interesting that this is a gun control movie on some strange level. Well, it's also a lot of Westerns now do that, right? Wyatt Earp had that. It was a big deal for some, for a lot of these recent Westerns, like this idea of not having firearms in city ordinance, right. blah, blah, blah. So it, it, it causes all this, it's built in tension within the movie. So it's smart to do it. Well, one of the things that we've talked about in the Westerns that we've done is that a theme that seems to go throughout a lot of them is the end of the West. Yes. That's High Noon. Yeah. That's uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Sure. That's Magnificent Seven is this moment of there was this time when everything's open. And yeah. then these times where these cities are starting to say, we don't want that. We want law and order. We want we want uh, civilization. Mm -hmm. now. Even the Searchers does that. Searchers, when John yeah. Wayne gets the door closed on him at the end. Yeah. yeah or walks away rather at the end. Yeah. yeah the, this idea that the West is ending. Yep. And of course, I want civilization. Yeah. I don't want Little Bill. You know? Not Little Bill's version of civilization, no. that's for sure. No. I want I want Gary Cooper's version of civilization. <laughs> In the sheriff's office, got some deputies who are loading up rifles and mm -hmm. talking about they're talking about Little Bill. Yeah. And it's interesting cuz they, they talk about him being a bad carpenter, but they also go, there's some speculation I think about whether or not he is as tough or as brave. Yes, yeah, one guy who's speculating it because yeah. he's scared out of his mind about what they're about to do with English Bob. With English Bob, right? And the dude that's talking to them and telling them how with one hand by the way, who only has one hand, one arm yeah. by the way. He's the one telling him what's up and he says that. He, like he's, you know, he came out of Kansas, he came out of these yeah. hard territories, boys. Little Bill's just fine, yeah. you know? And the guy's like, it's okay to be scared. Like, yeah. Well, and this is what good movies do, is you're building up expectation yeah. to Little Bill. Right. Is that we saw him at the beginning with the prostitutes. We've seen him building his house, and it's kind of funny. Yeah. And now we're going to see the moment, because now we just saw the guy that killed the pheasants that everyone's scared of, yeah. English Bob. Yeah. Like, oh shit, what's going to happen? What does he say about his house? There's not a right angle in that place? Yeah, the whole place? something like that. <laughs> you know, you don't have a straight angle in that whole goddamn porch. Or in a whole house, for that matter. <laughs> He is the worst damn carpenter. 
But it's so symbolic that he can't build the house, right? Right. It's symbolic. He can't build a home. It's symbolic to me. Of it's course. Very powerfully so. Well, because he is it's, the person who's supposed to bring civilization. Right. And he can't actually. No, be, because he, he has no foundation. No. Right. Because he's not a good person. Right. And he believes he is. Right. His delusion about his ability to build that house is the same as his delusion about the ability to build this town. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. It's empty. English Bob's getting a nice shave and a haircut. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still talking. <laughs> uh, I love his line. After he's done with the shave, he spins around. He looks at the barber. He goes, well, a president. I mean, why not shoot a president? It's so, it's so perfectly arrogant, yet so charming to watch. And Rubinick, with his smarmy cockiness, because he, he's, he's acquiring balls by being close to this guy, flips the... Like so cockily flips the uh, coin onto the barber's uh, desk and says, like, you know, keep the change as if he's some kind of cool kid, which we find sometimes in life that some people gravitate to people who are powerful and think they have the same stones that that person and they don't. I think what's what's so interesting that sort of I'm thinking of it now, I'm trying to figure out how to formulate is there's a continuum of characters in this film where you have the Schofield kid who wants a reputation. Yeah. He has, he's actually done nothing yeah. and wants a reputation. Mm-hmm. Then you have English Bob, who has done something yeah. and has skills, but his reputation is well beyond maybe what, and he lives, he, he basks in his reputation. Yes. He has the joy of his reputation. And the reason that he can talk such smack all the time is that everybody's scared of him. Yeah. And so he enjoy, he is purposely poking yeah. at people, knowing they are too cowardly to poke back. English Bob. English Bob. Yeah, yeah. And then you have uh, little Bill, who is also likes his reputation mm-hmm. and also is arrogant, but it is the real deal. Yeah. You know, he is the real deal. He's the abuse of the reputation. Right. Yeah. And then and then you have, well, it's the reputation built on more fact than right. English Bob. Right. And then you have Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Who actually doesn't, I don't think he gives a shit about his reputation. Nope. He's he, trying to run away from his reputation. Yeah, he's trying to run away. Exactly. Right. He's trying to run away from his reputation. Right. And he is, without question, the real fucking deal. Yeah. You know, he doesn't want to bask it. He's not in, into it for the glory or into it. He's just, when he gets a certain way, a mean son of a bitch. Yeah. You know? That's what I was saying to people. If you've got to talk about it, you ain't it. Um, well, and that is certainly English Bob. Mm-hmm. And he walks outside. And there are a whole bunch of guns pointing at him. And who does he see there? Little Bill. Little Bill. And his reaction. Oh, Jesus. He says something like, Jesus and crumpets or something. Like, he just says something that's like, damn it, of all the people. Because that's true, too, Steve, is that a lot of these guys knew about each other in different right. towns. Well, and what it shows us is, is that it, it, there's lots of ways to build up your bad guy. Yeah. And... The, the way that they do this is they don't build up Bill. They build up English Bob. Exactly. And then English Bob sees Bill and goes, oh, shit. <laughs> and it's very clear that English Bob isn't in the league yeah. of little Bill. Right. And so now without Bill doing anything, yeah. we go, oh, man, he's the real deal. Right. And <laughs> uh, I love the long time, Bob. You run out of Chinaman. <laughs> Bill, Bill. Well, I thought you was, um, but I thought that you were dead. Well, actually, what I heard was that you fell off your horse, drunk, of course, and that you broke your bloody neck. 
I heard that one myself, Bob. Hell, I even thought I was dead. Till I found out it was just that I was in Nebraska. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And then the uh, he asked who the associate is, who is W.W. Beauchamp. Beauchamp. Um, Great writer name. And he's just a writer. Yeah. He's there. He is the biographer of English Bob. And he starts to reach into his bag to get uh-huh. his book. I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> and boy, all the guns pull out. And, and he uh, lets go of his bladder control <laughs> in that moment. Have you ever seen anyone piss themselves? Uh, yes. Really? From laughter. Okay, that's different. But not from fear. Yeah, I've never seen anyone piss themselves no. from fear. So I guess that means that uh, you saw the signs outside of town there saying, surrender your firearms. You're not armed, are you, Bob? Well, not really, Bill. A peacemaker, but that wouldn't worry you, would it? I mean, if you don't see it, or most particularly if you don't hear it. And they take away his gun. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he asked someone, one of his deputies, go see what kind of book Mr. Beauchamp is looking. See that you don't get wet. Um, and the whole town is watching there. Yeah. And we see that the book is called something about the Duke, mm-hmm. which we have a long running go- joke that uh, Bill just calls it the duck. Yeah. The duck of death. The duck of death. And then he asked Bob for the 32. Well, good afternoon, gentlemen. I'll have that 32, Bob. And once again, Eastwood frames this so perfectly because Richard Harris turns into the camera in close-up, and you see everyone else on the left side of the frame in smaller kind of close-up, but you see very powerfully that Richard Harris, or English Bob, has been found out in this way. Like, he was okay surrendering his first one sidearm, but the last, that thirty-two, which only Little Bill would know about, uh, is essentially making him... Totally uh, vulnerable. Totally vulnerable to his enemies. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then the movie takes this turn, mm-hmm. which is at this moment we go like, oh, wow, he just got the best of him. He got his guns. Yeah. Guess he's going to put him in jail, send him out of town. But that is not what happens. No. You've been talking about the queen again? On Independence Day? <laughs> Proceeds to beat the ever-loving shit out of him. I guess you think I'm kicking you, Bob. <laughs> Ain't so. What I'm doing is this part. You hear? I'm talking to all those villains down there in Kansas. And I'm talking to all those villains in Missouri. And all those villains down there in Cheyenne. And I'm telling them there ain't no horse gold. This is when he becomes, this is when we know he's a full villain. Like oh, yeah. In this moment, he's, it's his full villain moment. Because he took the guns from him on purpose. Oh, yeah. That he could kick the shit out of him right. and not, have, not be shot. There's no, there's no, I mean, this is, little Bill knows what he's doing. Yeah, of course. He is very competent. Yeah. And what's interesting is he's doing, he's saying, you think I'm beating you? I'm not beating you. I'm telling, making an announcement to all the cowboys who want to come here. They're not, it's not going to happen. They're not welcome. They're not welcome. And, and of course, who's watching, but all of the prostitutes. And again, it's in that silent, proud, impenetrable way that they're watching these events. Yeah. I can't say enough about how great an actor Gene Hackman is. Yeah. Yeah, he's one of my favorites. Retired, man. I know. Fucking Ray Romano sent him into retirement. Is, is that what did it? Welcome to Mooseport. He, after he did after that, that film and it came out, he said, I'm never acting again. Wow. On camera. Wow. He never has. I wonder, and, and of course, I, I, I wish him well. Mm-hmm. If that's what he wants to do, he's given us so much. But I also go, man, I, I hope he's okay. I wonder what's going on. Oh, yeah. Uh, if, I think if Eastwood did one more Western, Hackman might come out of retirement. Yeah. Um. 
Will and Ned are riding along. Uh, Ned asks, do you, do you ever go into town? I love the way that Ned sort of asks questions around things. He's like, yeah, I go into town to sell a hog, get supplies. What about to get yourself a woman? No, I never go into town for that. A man like me. Only one a man like me could get is one he'd have to pay for. Her. Claudia, rest your soul, would never want me doing something like that. Me being a father-in-law. So you, you just use your hand? <laughs> That's a very personal question. Yeah. His response is, I don't miss it all that much. And then there's gunshots. Yeah. And they take cover. Of course, Will just kind of fell off his horse. Mm -hmm. And they cannot figure out for a while who's shooting at him. And he's shooting all over the place. All over the place. Yeah. And finally he yells out, hey, kid. Because it's the Schofield kid right. who's shooting at him. And he yells, no, it's me. I got my partner with you. Stop shooting. You ain't going to shoot no more, are you? And he's like, no, no, I'm not. And now we finally get back together. And the kid is not happy that Will brought a partner. Yeah. That is not something he's pleased about. And it, we're kind of saying why Ned's valuable. He's a good shot with a rifle. And the kid's like, I'm a good shot with a rifle. <laughs> you weren't even shooting near us. Yeah. And then the kid puts his hand on his gun. And it's like, are you really going to go against Ned and Will mm -hmm. over this? Um, and they finally convinced him, okay, we're going to go three ways. Right. Yeah. Um, they ride together for a while. And Will's looking off in the distance. The kid's like, what are you looking at? And he goes, well, I'm looking at the clouds because we're going to have a storm. <laughs> kids, oh, them. I, I, yeah, I see them. <laughs> it's such so great how you find this out. Yeah. The kid has a terrible vision. Terrible vision. Of all the things for him to have as a... As a, as a, as a gunslinger. As a gunslinger, right. Is terrible vision. Well, and then, and then Ned, there's kind of a little look, and he goes... And Ned starts to go, no, it's good that you, you, you got me. I am really a good shot. Like, yeah. you, see the, you see that hawk? <laughs> <laughs> the kid looks up, and we have a shot of the sky. There's no hawk. And he goes, oh, yeah, I see that hawk. Yeah. <laughs> I can hit that with one shot. There ain't no hawk, kid. <laughs> you can't see for shit, can you? <laughs> and what does he do? He grabs a canteen, yeah. throws it on the ground, and shoots it. Just how far can you shoot, kid? <laughs> and we find out it's like maybe 50, 50 yards. May fuck. Five feet, maybe. It seems, but it must be worth This guy really can't see. Yeah, he can't like, see. We need some Maybe glasses. five yards tops. And then he pulls his... Gun and points it at Ned. Because Ned is going on about it, how he yeah. doesn't want to keep riding with this kid if yeah. he can't shoot. He yeah. challenges the kid's manhood, and the kid does the only thing he can do is to pull out the gun. And they sit and have this conversation. And there's just one thing that's funny about filmmaking. So all these people obviously got to ride horses, and we're gonna have conversations on horses. But when you're having a conversation on horses and you're supposed to be really still, yeah, horses aren't still. Right. You can't have horse they they will move. They breathe, they move, they move their bodies, they move uh -huh. their feet. So for this scene, when he's got the gun on him, this is three guys sitting on ladders. <laughs> no surprise. Yeah. So you have the horses when we get into the scene, and yeah. then we switch to the ladders for when we have to be still. That's great. We're to what might be my favorite scene in the movie. Okay. We're in the jail. Uh, oh, yeah. Beauchamp yeah. and Bob are, are locked up in a cell. Yeah. Bill is there. He's reading through the Duke of Death, the Duck of Death. Duck of Death. Um. <laughs> And first we talk about the cover, which maybe there was some artistic mm -hmm. license. And then he goes into the book and starts reading the book. And of course, Beauchamp, as any writer would, is defending his writing. Yes. Like, oh, maybe I got a little flowery in the prose, mm -hmm. but everything is confirmed by eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. Yes, sir. You mean like the duck himself, I guess. <laughs> they, the duke. Duck, I says. And that's when you see the flash of anger with Bill when he says... Duck Eye says he's yeah. not gonna let Beauchamp. No, yeah, because 
Bill's scary. Yeah. He's scary in a soft way. Heckman's so great at these things. Uh, he's really good. And uh, he continues to kind of make fun of this book. And then we get to this story where English Bob killed Corky Two Guns. Yeah. And it ends up, Bill was there. I was in the Blue Bottle Saloon in Wichita the night that English Bob killed Corky Corcoran. I didn't see you there. First of all, he didn't have two guns. Right. <laughs> Why was he called two guns? Because he had a pecker. The size of a little. <laughs> yeah, because he was about his dick. Yep. And then Bob was drunk, and he didn't draw first, and he went, and Bob went to shoot him just out of jealousy. Yep. And Corker went to draw his gun, and he drew. So, he was really fast. Yeah. But he was so fast that he shot his own toe off. <laughs> and then Bob went up and and misses again. Yeah. Killed, breaks a thousand dollar mirror. Well, now the duck of death is as good as dead because Corky does it right. Aims real careful. No hurry. And bam! Walker Colt blew up in his hand, which was a failing common to that model. And I love the line that he says, see, if Corky had had two guns instead of just a big dick, he could have defended himself. Right. Um, and English Bob just walked up and shot him in the liver. Mm -hmm. And that is your heroic story right and i love the reaction from from saul from ww Beauchamp. like it's a great reaction to i've built my whole last year or two right on this guy because i thought he was something and now i'm finding out that he's not right yeah what's great also is um it's very reminiscent of the moment in the natural when barbara hershey turns from the whammer yeah, to Roy. To Roy. Yeah. Yeah, it's that a, thing. That yeah. guy switches allegiance. This is exactly what he does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now we're back camping, and now Ned misses his bed. Yeah. <laughs> he says, you said that last night. No, last night, I said I missed my wife. Now I miss my dadgum bed. <laughs> well, you'll miss your dadgum roof in a while, because the thunder is happening. Right. The kid walks up, and he asks about... Now, it's funny. We just had a story about English Bob that had been exaggerated mm -hmm. in a book, where it didn't happen anything like he said. And now the right. kid comes up and asks, Will, did that thing in Jackson happen the way that I heard? Mm-hmm. And now there's two deputies up close pointing the rifles right at you. How'd you dead the rats? You pulled out your pistol and blew them both to hell. You only took a scratch yourself. Will says he doesn't recollect. Do you believe him? I believe that it's vague in his brain. That's what I think. Okay. What do you think? Uh, yes, I agree with you. I believe it's vague in his brain. I think he was drunk. I think he knows mm -hmm. he remembers it kind of. Yeah. Being um, drunk. If he was drunk the whole time, then yeah. Yeah, how much do you remember? And, and of course the kid is asking questions because he wants to know what kind of person he is, you know, uh, because you got to ride with a person, you got to know what's going on. And then they ask him, and he says, well, I killed five people, including a Mexican who went after me with a knife. With a knife. Yeah. Do you think anyone believes him in the audience at this point? No, I know Ned doesn't because Ned just puts his hat back on. Because Ned knows if you killed five people, you don't be bragging about it. And you don't walk, walk around that piss and vinegar. He just knows. And maybe you can see more than 20 feet in front of your face. Well, exactly. <laughs> and also, you're a different person once you kill a man, right? And that find, the kid finds out that out later. Right. Ned knows, and so does Will. Yeah. And now we're into, this is actually what my favorite scene is. is the, it's not, because it, I forgot that the jail cell right. was in two. But one last thing before we jump in that, Steve. Yeah. I think you see the flash again of, Will, of, of the old Will money in this scene right at the end when he tells the kid to shut up and go to sleep. Yeah. He's now taking control of the gang right. again. Well, it's it's. I'm glad you brought it up because there is a slow evolution. Mm -hmm. There, there, there will come a huge shift, right? But there is. It's like step by step. As he gets closer to the town, yeah, the 
old will money starts to come out more and yeah. more. Well, and it's interesting. Just the weather is like yeah. the storm is coming. The storm is coming, which is you know, the and, will the sto- yeah. and will is the storm. Will is the storm. Yeah. that's a great point. Um, okay, we're back in the jail. Yeah. Now uh, Beauchamp is out, and he's just now he's asking questions. And you can see, as you said, he is now switched. He's now Little Bill's biographer, mm-hmm. and Bill is performing. Oh yeah, not in the way that English Bob did. It's subtler. Yeah, but. He's still doing it. He still likes the attention. And and one of the things they start talking about is being fast. Yeah. And yes, Corker is faster than Bob, but fast doesn't matter. And I love that he draws a gun. He's like, that's about as fast as I could draw and still hit anything. Right. You know, it's much more about being cool headed. Yeah. Um, and then he goes into this idea of that there are very few dangerous men like Bob and like me. Mm-hmm. So he puts Bob in the group. And there's and I think what he's talking about is it's not so easy to kill a man. Uh that rattles some people. Yeah. And that there's this distinction, even though Bob is not at his level, he's still in the club mm-hmm. as a person who is willing to kill. And then he sit, takes out a gun and he hands it to him. Here's here, take the gun. Mm-hmm. This is an amazing moment. Yeah, it is. It is. So, it wakes. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Steve. Sorry. No, it's fine. It, it wakes English Bob up. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. He kind of looks, and Beauchamp very reluctantly takes that gun. Yeah. Um, he says, "Pick it up." All you got to do is shoot me. And you and Bob can just ride on out of here free as birds. And Beauchamp walk, looks over at Bob. Now Bob sits up. Mm-hmm. This is, the way they build tension in this scene is amazing. And yeah. Bill's just staring at him. <laughs> it is, it isn't, is it loaded? Wouldn't do you much good if it wasn't. First you got to cock it. Go on, cock it. And he does. Yeah. Uh, Beauchamp stands up. Now you got to point it. And there's like a nervous laugh. And I think watching this as an audience, I have no idea where this is going to go. Exactly. But Bill has taken, Bill is not like playful at all in this whole sequence. He is trying to prove a point to Beauchamp, but he's also like in his mind preparing himself to have to maybe shoot Beauchamp if this goes wrong. Well, and, and, and he is not showing any fear. This is a, this is a guy supremely confident in what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, and Beauchamp lifts the gun. Now all you got to do is pull the trigger, mister. And there's almost a moment where he starts to really seriously point it. Right. And then you see him soften and the gun goes down. And Bill laughs. <laughs> Hot, ain't it? <laughs> you didn't even put your finger on the trigger. And then he, Bill kind of goes like, okay, give me the gun back. Right. And Beauchamp takes a step back. He yanks the gun away from Bill. Yeah. Close to him and then says, well, what if I give it to Bob? Yeah. And then that's when uh, little Bill completely changes into full little Bill and just yeah. goes, give it to him. Yeah. Oh, man. That, that is amazing. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's funny because first he says it sort of softly. Yeah. Give it to him. And then there's a, like, really? And then it's insistent. It's yeah. not... You have a choice. It started with, here, here's a choice. You right. can shoot me or not shoot me. Then it becomes, no, no, give it to him. Right. You don't, you don't really want me to give it to him. And he walks over to the cell, and Bob has gotten up and walked to the mm-hmm. bars, and he puts the gun at the bars, <laughs> and Bob's hand goes down towards it, and Bill is standing there, and then Bob lifts his hand up and puts it on the bars. Yep. That is amazing. Great tension in that moment. And Bill says, I guess you don't want it, Mr. Beauchamp. And Bill takes the gun away. 
It was loaded. Yep. Jumped um, all the bullets out. Um, Much to English Bob's chagrin. Yeah. <laughs> and Bill says, no, you were right not to take it, Bob. I would have killed you. I would have killed you. Yeah. Do you have any doubt that he would have killed him? No doubt at all. Not even a second. Nope. He would have killed him. Yep. Yep. I don't know where he had another gun. No, he had. It's on his hip. It's on his hip, right? Oh, yeah, no. He he's got a gun. He, he would have killed it's him. It's merely a question of, you know, how fast can he draw? Right. And accurately can he shoot? Right. Before Bob can really take that gun. Right. And you Bob, know. as he said in that story, is not really known for his accuracy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, even less so beat up like that. Exactly. <laughs> Now the rain has come and they're drinking some whiskey. Um, offer some to Will. Nope. No, I don't do that. Um, and it's like, it's raining. <laughs> uh, but no, he's not going to do any whiskey. Um, and then there's this moment. It's Ned and Will alone. And he asks about the same story the kid asked about, which had two deputies. Right. And Ned said, you know, when he was talking back there about the time them deputies had to drop on you and Pete. Yeah. Well... I remember there was three men you shot, Will, not two. Where the legend isn't even, that's the, the, iron, the irony. Yes. The legend isn't even correct in the negative because it's, it's supposed to be correct, like overdone. It's actually underdone the legend of Will Money. He's well, we, even more vicious. I, this is where this is a brilliant screenplay. Yeah. Like screenplays work on a lot of different levels. Yeah. And one of them is thematic. And, th- th- and this is the key thing is that we just had a whole scene that was all about the difference between Bob's legend and the reality. Yeah. And what we have is Bill, who's tougher than Bob, yeah. exposing him for the truth. So Bob is an overblown legend. Yeah. And then and then Bill is the truth. Right. Theoretically. And then we get to Will and it's underblown. Yeah. Is that he is in fact much, much worse and much more scary mm-hmm. than his legend would have you believe. <laughs> that is great, great, subtle, smart screenwriting. Yeah. And Will's response is, well, I ain't like that no more. I ain't no crazy killing fool. To which Ned's response is, still think it's going to be easy to kill them cowboys? We don't drown first. We're going to say goodbye to Bob. Yeah. Puts him on a stagecoach, tells him you can uncuff him when you get out of the county, even gives him the pistols. All bent up. All bent up. <laughs> and says, I guess you know, Bob, that uh, if I see you again, I'm just going to start shooting and figure it's self-defense. And then Bob goes off. Yeah. He yells at As the he's riding town. away. Yes. And what I love is it's a completely different accent. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, right. It's more right. It's that's it's a, a lower class. Yes, accent. that's a great point. Is that he has been pretending to yeah. be some upper class this English Bob, yeah, knob, you know, and in fact he's some lower class guy just playing a role because now he's you bloody town. I do blah, blah, blah. He just screams at him. Bunch of savages. Yeah, bloody savages. You're a lot of savages. That's what you all are. A bunch of bloody savages. Curse on you. And 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 after he's gone. Skinny tells Delilah to clean up, and then he asks if she could just cover her face. With a veil. With a veil. But Strawberry Alice also says... Nobody's going to come. Hmm? After what little Bill done to that Englishman. But then after the line about a veil, they look up and say... Rain's coming. Thank God. And Will is the rain. Will is the storm. And as the storm comes, the big whiskey in the form of Will Money... We've reached the end of part one of Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. As always, you can reach us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, on YouTube. Please leave a review on iTunes, comments on YouTube. 
And if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. You can reach John at Twitter and on Instagram at the Roca says. And we will see you next time on the cinephiles for part two of Unforgiven. <laughs>